Well, good morning again, church family. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day. And I want to say thank you for worshiping the Lord through song. And now let's worship through the word, shall we? If you haven't done so already, I'd like to invite you to take your listening outline from your worship guide, get a pen in hand, and open your Bibles, if you would, in the New Testament to the little letter of Philippians, one of the letters of the Apostle Paul. And in just a moment, we're going to look at a few verses from chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. Philippians. It's a message that I've entitled, you'll see it on your outline, it's simply called Seven Exhortations for Christ-like Living. Now, as we're preparing to hear the word here in the worship center, I want to say a warm welcome to those in our contemporary service, those on TV and online. I'm really glad that you're joining in this service this morning as well. We're really glad you're here. You know, at Ingleside, we not only gather as a church, but then every week we are scattered The church gathers and then the church is scattered. That's the pattern that God intends. When we gather, we worship, we hear teaching, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, we celebrate with one another, and then we scatter into the world, into our families, into our workplaces, our schools, and as we go, we go with the gospel. Now, if you're new to Ingleside today, I want you to know that part of our DNA that goes all the way back to our founding is a commitment to going intentionally with the gospel to those places where people have not heard and have not yet followed Jesus. For instance, on Friday, we sent a team off to Indonesia. I think there are pictures on the screen. And as they pulled that up, I want you to pray for this team. They traveled from Atlanta to Seoul, Korea, from Seoul to Jakarta, from Jakarta now to the city where they'll be serving. And they'll be having English language conversations all week long in an English language kind of club and they'll have a chance to share the gospel there. I'm really thankful for each one of these team members and I hope you're planning to go in the days ahead uh, to share the gospel as well. Well, as the church, we gather and then we scatter and then we gather again and I'm glad you're gathered here this morning. You know, um, as we look to the book of Philippians, the reason why we are is because it's been part of our chapter of day readings this last week. And let me just say, if you're not in that journey, text the word chapter to 22828, sign up with your email address. You'll be able to join with hundreds and hundreds of us as we read the word, apply it to our lives, and ask God by his spirit to transform us every day. So during this last week, I hope you read chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, just four chapters of the book of Philippians. Now, anytime you read something, whether it's a book of the Bible or perhaps an editorial or op-ed piece in the paper or something posted online or something on social media, Oftentimes, understanding is deeper if you know something of the backstory. So let me take just a moment to give you some of the backstory 
of the book of Philippians. On the front page of your outline, and I think they'll put it on the screen, you see a map of the Mediterranean world. In the bottom right-hand corner, you see Jerusalem. In the upper left, you'll see Rome. And, the, and then in the middle, you see where Philippi is. It was a Roman colony. It's in Europe, what we would know as Europe today, in Greece. And Paul and his companions planted a church there on their second missionary journey in about 50 A.D. That's when the church was planted there. If you want to read about it, go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 tells about how the church was begun in Philippi. But now we're 12 years later. Paul is in prison under house arrest in Rome, not not far from the end of his life. In fact, he'll be executed likely within five years of writing uh, the book of Philippians. And so he writes back to this church in Philippi. He's saying thank you to them for sending some supplies and sending some financial resources and sending some encouragement to them, to him. And now he's writing them back to encourage them. And you'll find that encouragement is just a big theme throughout the book of Philippians. Now, when we get to chapter 4, though, it's the part that just captured my attention this week. Now, in all of his writings, the Apostle Paul is keen to say, here's what you should believe, and here's how you should live. In other words, all of his letters have doctrinal content, but they also have practical content. It's some of that practical exhortation that I want us to hear today, and it's in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Would you look at your copy of God's Word, or page 2 of your outline, and let's see what the Lord would say to you and me today. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, my brothers, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You know, whenever you read that verse, one of the things that jumps off, off the page, I think, is the affection in the relationship the Apostle Paul had with these believers. Do you, do you see the language of love and affection there? He calls them brothers, meaning brothers and sisters too, men and women. He says, whom I love. He said, I really love you in Christ and I'm thankful for you. In fact, in chapter 1, he says, when I pray for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He not only says, I, I love you, but because he's separated from them geographically, he says, and I long for you. I would love to see you again. I would love for our fellowship to be restored. And then he goes even further. He says, you're my joy. When I think about you following Christ and growing to maturity in him, it just brings joy to my heart. And he says, and you're also my crown. You're part of the evidence that will lead God to crown me and reward me one day because of the way he has worked in you. And then if that wasn't enough, at the end of the verse, one more time, he says, you're my beloved. I love you. You know, if I haven't said it often enough, I want to say it again today. Church family, I 
love you. I am grateful with, for a relationship with many of you that spans more than three decades and some of you who are brand new to the journey and many in between. And I just want to say some of what the Apostle Paul feels toward the Philippians, man, I feel toward you. Your walk with Christ, your boldness for him, your fidelity to him, it just brings me joy. And to know that we walk together in Christ Boy, that relationship is one I cherish. And I want to say, I love you, church family. And I also want to say the same word of challenge that the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians. He said, now, church that I love, stand firm. Now, you can write that in. Uh, that's the first thing he challenges us today with. Uh, stand strong is the way I am putting it on the outline. Um, in the King James Version, it says stand fast. In the New Living Translation, it says stay true. In the message paraphrase, it's put this way. It, it says don't waver, don't waver, stay on track, steady, in God. Now, it's reasonable to ask why at the end of the letter he would say that. I did not put it on your outline. Uh, you'll have to listen carefully or look in your copy of the Lord's Word, but in the immediately preceding verses, you get the reason why at the end of the letter he says, Stand strong, stand firm, stand fast. Don't waver, keep the course, stay true. And the reason why is this, listen. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. This is chapter 3, verse 17. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, he says, as I follow Christ, you follow me. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. The Apostle Paul is not happy about what he is about to report. He says, as I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, look, there, there are those in chapter 2, he calls them opponents of the gospel. And so as he's wrapping up the letter, he says, listen, I want to remind you that there really are some who oppose the message and who are your spiritual enemies. And then he describes them. Listen, he says, verse 19 of chapter 3, their end is destruction. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't be misled. It may, be, it may appear they're in the ascendancy, but the enemies of the gospel, well, in the end, they don't win. God does. Then he says about those enemies, their God is their belly. In other words, he's saying, it's their appetites, their desires, unchecked, unshaped by the gospel, but instead just giving full vent to their sinful nature that describes their lives. He says the enemies of the gospel, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, 
And then his last descriptive phrase is this. He says, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. He says, those enemies of the gospel, those opponents you have spiritually, they take glory in what they ought to be ashamed of. He says, they are proud of what they ought to repent of. And then he says, but our citizenship, remember, our ultimate home is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then having described the enemies and our heavenly citizenship, that's when the Apostle Paul says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, therefore, church family that I love, stand firm, stand fast, stay true, don't waver, stay on track, keep steady in your walk with God. And I want to say the same today because we live in a day where there are still enemies of the gospel who would lead us astray. So stand firm, stand strong. How many of you remember, maybe back in the early 90s, um, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait World leaders were attempting to know what they ought to do. Do you remember who our president was back then? It was George H.W. Bush, Bush the first. And he was trying to decide what our response should be. And he was apparently talking to other world leaders about how we should respond to this aggression unprompted. And the story is told and reported is true that one of his advisors was the woman who led the government of England at the time. She was sometimes called the Iron Lady. Do you know who I am talking about? Who was that, the Iron Lady? Yeah, Margaret Thatcher. And so apparently our president, George H.W. Bush, was talking with the Iron Lady and he was talking about his consideration of what he should do or not do in the face of this evil. And the Iron Lady says to him, don't go wobbly, Mr. President. And I want to go, wow. I'm so glad she was one of his advisors. And you know what she was saying to him is what the Apostle Paul is saying to us. He's saying, listen, don't go wobbly. Don't waver. Stand fast. Stand firm. Stay true. Be steady. Stick by the gospel. Stick by the truth. So you're saying, well, Pastor, that's great. I can appreciate you underlining that for us today, but why? What, what, what is the urgency? Why, why this morning? Well, part of it is it's just part of God's word, but some of it is a report that was released just this week, September 13th, 2022, by the Pew Research Center. Did you see the headlines? It was reported widely. 
The title of the report is Modeling the Future of Religion in America. The subtitle says, If recent trends in religious switching continue, Christians could make up less than half of the U.S. population within a few decades. The first sentences of the report say, quote, Since the 1990s, over the last three decades, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or, quote, nothing in particular, the so-called nuns. In fact, their data, 2020-20 estimate, is if you were, if you were to ask today, 64% of Americans would identify as a Christian in some way. 30% would identify as a nun, no faith or commitment at all. And about 6% would be all the other religions, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, all the others. If you read through the report, you can see that their projection that is, is that if current trends continue, by the year 2070, Christians will fall below 50% of the population and by 2070, nuns will reach a majority. And then the statement that just struck me was on page nine of the report, when it said, we estimate that 31%, almost one in three, we estimate that almost one in three of people who are raised Christian People who are raised in a church like this one. People who are raised in a Christ-following home. They say, we estimate that 31% of people raised Christian become unaffiliated between ages 15 to 29. The tumultuous period in which religious switching is concentrated. Did you hear that? The tumultuous period, the zone that has both danger and opportunity in it, is from roughly middle teens to about 30 years old. And if current trends continue, a full third of kids who grow up in a church like this one will come to a place they just say, I just don't believe that anymore. I don't trust that anymore. I don't follow that anymore. I don't identify with that anymore. I don't believe that anymore. In current parlance, they are sometimes called ex-evangelicals. Not evangelicals, but ex, those who have left. Ex-evangelicals are, sometimes they are said to be deconstructing, deconstructing their faith. What it really means is far too many, sad to say, are simply abandoning the faith. So, in, in, in light of these trends that have been going on for three decades now, what, what should we say? 
Well, the first thing I think we should say as a church is that our investment in next generation ministries with middle schoolers, high schoolers, and young adults is more important than it ever has been before. And we need to continue to make a sizable investment. And your prayers for a new high school pastor, a new young adult pastor, your willingness to volunteer and to serve so that young families with their kids would come and hear the gospel. Oh, that's more important than ever before. That's a good place to say amen, don't you think? Yeah. You know, it just blessed me when I got the report late yesterday. Our middle school ministry, Will Faison, our, Will, our middle school pastor, reported we had almost a hundred middle schoolers and twenty-something leaders in a retreat on Friday and Saturday, learning the things of the Lord. And I just wanted to say hallelujah for that. May their tribe increase. So it means those ministries are important. What else does it mean? Can I just speak to everybody who's 15 to 30 today? You don't have to be. You don't need to be. And you ought not to be among the one-third who walk away. You just need to be warned that the pressure will be there, and then by the grace of the Lord, ask him to help you stand strong even as you move through those years. The second thing to say, though, is, is if you're in that age group, if you're a young adult, if you're a teenager, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when someone you grew up in church with says, you know, I'm walking away. And what I want to say is pray for them, love them, care for them, share, shed tears over them, but don't follow them. And then I would love to speak to every parent and grandparent of a 15 to 30-year-old today. They're going to be watching the character of your life and faith, your example, to see if there's integrity between what you say and the way you live and pray for them and invest in them and love them. But can I say one other word? Moms and dads, grandparents today, I pray it will not be so. But if one of your 15 to 30 years olds walks away, you must not follow them away. Pray for them, love them, but be a source of truth for them. Church family, can you hear the word of the Lord today? The word of the Lord is stand firm, stand strong, stand fast, stay true, don't waver, don't go wobbly for the glory of God. That's the Lord's word for us today. Some of you are saying, well, 
I'm glad we had a word because you've got a lot of blanks and you're never going to fill them in. Well, you might be surprised. Look at verse 2. He said, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, names of two women in Philippi, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So after he says, stand strong, notice, write it in, he writes, be reconciled. Now, we don't know anything about what was dividing these two ladies. We know they loved the Lord. They were faithful gospel partners. They were prominent in the church. Paul calls them by name. It's likely not doctrinal or he would have addressed it. It was not moral or he would have spoken clearly to it. So it's probably they were just divided over some personal issue, over some preference issue, over some relational issue. So he says to them and he says to us, listen, given the enemies of the gospel and our need to stand strong together, don't let the little unimportant things divide you. Instead, pursue unity, pursue, pursue harmony, be reconciled with one another. We, we need one another in the body of Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So what's the third exhortation? He says, choose joy. In fact, in Philippians, joy and rejoice appear more than 12 times. Now, even as you hear that, where is the guy who is writing that? He's under house arrest in Rome. He has lost his freedom. He's not free to travel to see them. There are hardships and deprivations there. And yet he says, listen, I want you to have a spiritual backbone like steel. I want you to be reconciled to one another. But I don't want you to be angry all the time. I don't want you to be anxious and worried all the time. Instead, he said, I want you to choose joy. So on our worst days in this life, how can we choose joy? Well, we choose joy, do you see it, in the Lord. So on my worst day in this life, guess what I can choose joy about? I can choose joy that he chose me before the foundation of the world, that he called me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, that he redeemed me to pay the price that would free me from the captivity of sin, that he forgave me and every sin and its stain has been washed away, that he adopted me into his family and I can now call him father, that his grace is sufficient for every season of life, that his love will never let me go, that he has prepared for me a place in heaven and one day when I take my last breath my next experience will be to be in the presence of the Lord. Oh, listen, 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 listen. When Paul's not saying here, he's not saying be plastic, be inauthentic, pretend everything's great when it's not. No, he, he, he was far too great a realist than that. 
He says, there are enemies, there are opponents, you will be tempted to walk away, but in the midst of it all, choose joy. Let's do that. One one, one more quick thing and then we'll run to the end. Look at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, the word translated reasonableness in the Greek, epikase, epikase, is a very difficult word to translate. Um, Let me tell you, um, the ESV says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The NIV says, listen, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The King James says, let your moderation be known be known to everyone. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. The New Living Translation says, uh, be considerate of everyone. It means equitable, fair, mild, gentle. So write it in. Let's summarize it this way. Paul and the Lord are saying to us, don't be extreme. Don't be extreme in the way that you speak, in the way that you act, but let there be an appropriate and fitting moderation, gentleness, consideration, graciousness, mildness, equitableness, equanimity. Let that characterize you. Now, church family that I love, have you noticed that the cultural conversation around us is becoming coarser more shrill, sometimes intentionally just turning up the flame as if to provoke. Now watch this. The Apostle Paul says, fight the battles. Have a backbone, a spiritual backbone of steel. But choose joy And don't you join in that extreme way of acting and communicating. Instead, let your words, let your spirit be gracious, considerate, gentle, and kind with unflinching fidelity to the gospel. Verse 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So in other words, Paul's saying, I recognize if you look at the future, it could produce anxiety. But write it in. He's saying, turn your worries into prayers. When you turn your worries into prayers, you'll find that you will experience the peace of God. And then he wraps up with this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, he's saying, fill your mind, fill your mind with good things, not with trash. And then verse 9, he wraps up by saying, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. So number seven, write it in. He says, put into practice, put into practice what you have learned. What you've seen me do, you do it. What you've heard me say, you say. 
follow my example. As I follow Christ, he said, put into practice what you have learned. And then I love it. He sort of culminates this chapter by encouraging them in a single sentence. If you were at Big Wednesday this past Wednesday night, it was a great night. We had hundreds of people here for an ice cream fellowship and great multi-generational worship. And we recognized leaders and we sent out mission teams and we had the Lord's Supper. It was just a great night. And as we wrapped up, we said this verse together since we were reading Philippians. And I'd like for us to say it again today. Would you say it with me this way? Uh, let's do it this way. Why don't you just repeat after me as we wrap up today. In Philippians 4.13, the scripture says, I can, I can do. I can do all things. I can do all things through him. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And one of those all things is you can stand. You can stand firm, you can stand strong, you cannot waver, you cannot go wobbly. Let's do that for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, stoke the flames of our joy and fidelity to you. Allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow through our lives with freshness and vitality. Lord, may the love of Christ radiate out toward us through a spirit that's gentle and considerate and kind and joyful. And Lord, right alongside that, help us not be worrying people, but instead praying people. Help us discipline what we think about and talk about. Lord, help us put into practice all we learn. And help us stand strong for our good and for your glory. We love you. And we offer this prayer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.